Welcome to Zero Sum Empire, the podcast that's taking a critical census of the roughly 640, mostly anonymous, American billionaires. Welcome back, everyone. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy 2020. So for those of you guys who have forgotten about us or who are meeting us for the first time, my name is Joe. Uh, I'm Chad. And we are back. Back in the saddle. Back in the saddle. So yeah, quick quick updates. Quick updates. Joe had a baby. I did. And he gave the baby a great name. Actually, I don't know. I don't want to dox your baby. Uh, yeah, maybe. I don't know. Are you one maybe of these people who's like, uh, I mean, you actually don't have social media. So it's not like as a parent, you really have to make the decision. Do I want to put my baby on social media or not? Right. Can we say the baby's name? <laughs> Yeah, we could probably say that. Should I ask my wife? I don't know. His name's Arlo. That's a great name. I think you did a good job. Thanks. This is the first episode of season two. We have yet to really sort of figure out what the real point is of having seasons, but I think well, that we do have some some new ideas that we're going to try to implement. I think that the was the idea. This, this next year. Yeah. Like yeah. the idea was, okay, over break, we're going to um, come up with all of these different ways to improve the show and change it. Uh, yeah. But we're, uh, it's going to be completely the same today, right? Today it's going to be completely, <laughs> completely the same. But I mean, you know, we don't want to make drastic changes too sudden, too early on. That's true. That's now, a great point. I think one of the things that we would like to do in season two is occasionally introduce guests invite guests on uh during our in the news segments yeah i think that'd be fun so we have a, i think an interesting show lined up today a couple of new billionaires some new ideas some old ideas anything else that we need to cover before we go into in the news i don't think so all right we're gonna do some news billionaires in I'm going to take you on a little bit of a journey today for the news. It's kind of a convoluted story, so I hope you can stick with me. But I'm going to start actually at a really familiar place, uh, somebody that we've talked about a whole bunch of times uh, because it's the the stupid saga that never ends, uh, which is Vinod Koshla filing lawsuits to keep surfers off of <laughs> the public beach behind his house. Yeah, so listeners of this, this show will be very familiar with this saga at this point. I don't even think... We need to re retell the story. I think it's now the fourth episode that we've talked about this, but it's not like we're repeating ourselves. He keeps doing new things in the lawsuits and like in the the struggle that he's engaged in. Uh, so he was back this week. Uh, he filed a new lawsuit. He sued the San Mateo Sheriff's Office, claiming that they had violated his Fourteenth Amendment rights to equal protection under the law. Because they were they were refusing to find surfers for using the road. <laughs> so like the what? police were just like, listen, man, it's been twelve years. You've been doing this since two thousand eight. We don't want to deal with it anymore. We are ignoring you now. And it, that's pretty amazing. <laughs> so it made him mad. So he sued the sheriff's department saying that they were, you know. But he's like, This is what the cops need to be doing. Yeah. 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 They need to be enforcing yeah. My beach gate. Yeah. And and what I and so from this article, which was the most recent one to come out about him, which I didn't realize this other thing that he currently has ongoing lawsuits uh, with uh, people that he's suing, including the director of county development uh, for San Mateo County, uh, the leaders of the California Coastal Commission and the State Lands Commission. 
uh, like he's su- and the sheriff's department. He's suing all of these people at once uh, to keep surfers uh, off of his dirt road. I mean, man, just let go. Yeah, <laughs> you know? it's it is the most insane thing. Uh, it is it's the tiniest hill that anyone has ever chosen to die on. <laughs> like it doesn't yeah. it doesn't make any sense. However, the reason that I'm bringing him up again, I mean, that's a pretty minor detail in the Vinod Koshla saga. But the reason that I'm bringing him up again is because he was also in the news. Just three days ago, for another reason, uh, he appeared in a Business Insider article, which was covering a meeting that he attended with, it was a small meeting of four, I think four or five people. Uh, and the other people there were uh, Peter Thiel, a friend of the show, and uh, <laughs> Alex Karp. Uh, if you don't know who Alex Karp is, he's the CEO of Palantir, uh, which is the, the company that, the like data analytics company that... Uh, Peter Thiel founded. And uh, that company was actually also in the news a couple of days ago for admitting after years of denying it, uh, uh, accidentally apparently admitting at the Davos conference that they that they have been uh, instrumental in the immigration and customs enforcements of family separations and deportations. They were back in the news because of that, but that's not what I'm talking about. Uh, it wasn't Palantir's dealings with ICE. It wasn't the beach. Uh, uh, the reason that Theo, uh, uh, Alex Karp, and Vinod Koshla uh, were in the news is because the person that they were meeting with was Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. Who was also back in the news this week for the Bezos thing? For the Bezos thing. Uh, and so be- because of the Bezos thing, uh, Business Insider did this article where they sort of went back through all of the meetings that MBS had with people in the United States when he came here. And of course, uh, he met with uh, Vinod Koshla, Theo, and Karp. And this is the story that I kind of wanted to get to. Like, Vinod Koshla is just a weird connection to getting to this odd story about uh, Jeff Bezos. And you may have heard like bits and pieces of it in the news, uh, but. I, I, it's it's such an insane story to me because it's so stupid. Like it, it like it really crystallizes uh, what we've become. You know, just like the the horror uh, of the 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 world that we're currently living in. And so, for those of you who don't know about this, and I and and just from talking to Joe briefly before the show, I get the sense that maybe you don't you don't you don't know all of the details of this story. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know that all the details of anything. <laughs> okay, all right. So, um, so here's what ha- you might. Okay, so you might have seen a story about um, uh, uh, Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman hacking Jeff Bezos's phone this week. Uh, this is ac- yeah. Well, I know. So yeah. this is part of a much longer story uh, that uh, uh, is connected to the Jeff Bezos dick pic story uh, from a while back. <laughs> if you remember that one, so. What I don't think I, I mean you may, I think you got to unpack that for some of our listeners. Well, yeah, I mean this happened. I mean this was like a year ago now. Um, uh, the National Enquirer sent the the tabloid, the supermarket tabloid, the National Enquirer sent Jeff Bezos a letter saying that they have dick pics uh, of him. They they did publish like intimate texts that he had with his like mistress, and they said we also have dick pics and we're going to publish these unless. Um, you publicly uh, denounce uh, what you have previously said about our attacks against you being politically motivated. I'll get to what that means in like a second, but but like what happened was 
the Saudi royal family stole dick pics from Jeff Bezos' <laughs> phone because they were mad at Jeff Bezos uh, because he owns the Washington Post, which was very critical of the Saudi regime. Uh, because they killed Kasim. Right. Who was a Washington Post journalist, right? And they're like, stop saying bad things about us. So what like what happened is Bezos' phone got hacked by MBS. And then somehow the Saudis gave this information to the National Enquirer, namely to to Trump's friend, uh, longtime, you know, pal, uh, David Pecker, who owns and runs American Media Incorporated, uh, and, which publishes the uh, National Enquirer. And then uh, and they published these text messages and then they sent a letter saying, like, if you don't uh, disclaim your assertion, uh, your assertion that the National Enquirer is uh, engaging in politically motivated attacks against you, we're going to also publish your dick pics. Why is Jeff Bezos saying that the National Enquirer is politically and is attacking him in a politically motivated way? And this is what this is like the really bananas part of the story. He meant that the Enquirer was acting as a propaganda mouthpiece for MBS and the Saudi royal family, hmm. which people thought like it like Bezos was being this kind of like a uh, conspiracy theorist and kind of like uh, uh, it's a very weird assertion to make, Mr. Bezos, that you're saying that the National Enquirer is doing this because their Saudis are mad at the Washington Post. That seems very convoluted. But in retrospect, uh, it seems like Bezos knew who got his information and how, namely that he was hacked by MBS's weird little, you know, malware program. Oh, and it's only now that it's coming exactly. out. That's how. Yeah. And so I see what it, what it, it, it also, it turns out that the National Enquirer is just very straightforwardly and literally a propaganda mouthpiece for the Saudi royal family. That is, it's it's crazy. I, like I, I didn't know this, but I looked. At, I was I was sort of reading some articles on this. And like way back in mid two thousand and eighteen, Associated Press was uh, reporting on this this very strange. A glossy magazine that suddenly appeared in every Walmart and rural supermarket in the U.S. called The New Kingdom. And the it was just like a propaganda magazine for the Saudi royal family. And it, it was like, they're good. They're reformers. Saudi Arabia is changing. Uh, they're not bad like they used to be. And it's like, and so the Associated Press is like, why is this weird magazine that's just saying when was this? 2018, like April 2018. So this was before the Khashoggi. Yes. Khashoggi yeah, murder. exactly. So the National Enquirer had been, well, I haven't gotten to it yet, but the people who paid for, published, and wrote that magazine was the National Enquirer. It was American Media International or uh, David Pecker's company. Like the only other thing that they really do is the National Enquirer. So like they... Took it upon themselves, uh, they say, to just create this propaganda magazine and put it in the supermarket checkout at like every rural place in America. And they swore that the Saudi government was not involved in this, that they did not pay for it at all. Right? <laughs> like, um, very obviously they did. And the reason that the AP got the scoop on this is because they somehow found out that the National Enquirer sent copies to the Saudi embassy before uh, they they released it in stores. Right. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so did they 
Did they get caught red-handed? Yeah, I mean, no, they're caught just, red-handed. Uh, I mean, they deny it, but uh, here's a uh, there's a great quote in the article uh, that that puts the the question very pointedly. Uh, the 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 AP article says, "quote Why would American media, best known for publishing salacious stories of sex and scandal, sink money into printing two hundred thousand copies of a magazine with a grinning Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman <laughs> splashed across the cover?" Like, oh, that's a great question. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, like that, that's the thing. Is like, well, okay, you know, it's not like we didn't do that before, right? Like that, that you know, there are obviously like CIA operations, and there there are you know. Uh, psyops being run on the American people all the time, but it's also stupid and transparent now, right? Like it's all like right. It's you fucking David it. Pecker and the National Enquirer, <laughs> and it's like they're just paying each other out in the open, and then they're sending these, you know, like phone malware. Like it's just so, just like so simple minded, right? Like it's weird that we live in a time where you can at once like photograph a black hole. <laughs> and at the same time, like the people in charge of everything are incredibly dumb. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's like, it, I mean, it, it, I mean, the, the, the Khashoggi murder itself was like really poorly executed. Right. Like, it, I mean, at least that had the, like the trappings of kind of old style, uh, you know, government secret operations or something. There were like, you know, operatives and embassies and murder involved. Whereas like, in the U.S. now, there's this like there's this like weird Trumpification of everything where uh, the Saudis are like, oh, we need to we need some um, you know image uh, enhancement uh, uh, operations done uh, in your country, uh, and it'll be of mutual benefit to both of us. And so you know our government's like, I know, let's call David Pecker and and his entire like. His entire strategy playbook is get dick pics and blackmail somebody. Like that's all he could think of, <laughs> and so like that's what we're doing now. Like it's a classic playbook. It, well, I guess so. <laughs> I guess so. I mean, you know, yeah. Chad, uh, why don't you talk about who you're going to cover today? I'm covering Fisk Johnson of the S.C. Johnson Company. Uh, Joe, what do you think of when you think when you hear S.C. Johnson? What's your? I think of like Johnson and Johnson like baby powder. Okay, <laughs> that's all I wanted because uh, that's what everybody thinks of, uh, and that is what I wanted to start with. So Johnson and Johnson and. S.C. Johnson are completely different companies, uh, hmm. not related to one another at all. They've both been around like 130 or 140 years, <laughs> and they are constantly so, confused with one another. Does S.C. Johnson have like little brother syndrome? Yes, very badly. Yeah. And what rem yeah. it reminded me of the time. Do you remember when we talked about Joe Bookman, the library cop? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> From Seinfeld. Oh, yeah. So, oh, oh, do I ever. Uh, so Joe can't Google himself because he has the same name as a character on Seinfeld. Uh, and that always comes up first. And uh, and basically, S.C. Johnson has the same exact problem, but on a much larger scale. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's so it, like it, this happens so much that if you go to uh, either S.C. Johnson or Johnson and Johnson's Wikipedia page, they have like a disambiguation tag at the top of the page. It's like this is a different. Oh, that's company. funny. 
Um, that's that's funny. Yeah. And they've been going at it for over a century. Yeah, yeah. And um, hmm. they have. And in fact, but it came to a head in 2019. Uh, and I don't know if you remember what happened to Johnson & Johnson this year. Uh, we've talked about the opioid crisis a number of times, but mainly in reference to the Sackler family and, uh, and other pharmaceutical companies. But Johnson & Johnson was fined uh, or ordered to pay uh, about a half billion dollars by an Oklahoma court uh, for the role it played in the opioid crisis. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah, And that, that's actually only the very, that was the very first case of over 500 pending cases. Right? So like, wow. Yeah. So Johnson Johnson is a bit of trouble. Where does Howard Johnson fit into all of this? Well, I didn't even think of that. My mom worked at Howard Johnson's when she was a teenager. Um, yeah. Anyway. You know what? I'm just, I'm just going to guess uh, it's a common name and they're <laughs> probably unrelated. Uh, I mean, it is. Yeah, it is very unremarkable that uh, <laughs> three companies have the word Johnson. There's <laughs> uh, Johnson Controls, which is one of the funniest names for a company. Um, that is a funny, a funny name. But the, the, the controversy... Uh, is that in the court filings that the the Oklahoma court uh, uh, filed when they were ordering Johnson and Johnson to pay all this money, they used SC Johnson's uh, trademarks tagline, which is a family company, and so they kept referring, they kept saying like Johnson and Johnson, a family company, probably in court. It, in the documents, yeah, which prompted <laughs> Fisk Johnson, the billionaire that I'm covering, to issue a press release. Uh, that said uh, that they are not Johnson and Johnson and do not sell pharmaceutical products uh, or manufacture pharmaceutical products or have any connection to Johnson. That's really Johnson. funny. Yeah. So um, SC Johnson does not make pharmaceutical products. Uh, do you know what they do make? Mm, no. They make mostly cleaning products. Uh, in fact, well, yeah, almost. I guess there's a couple exceptions, but mostly cleaning products. They produce some of the most well-known brands uh, that you will recognize: uh, Glade, Drano, Fantastic, uh, Method Cleaning. Have you seen Method? Did you ever make Drano bombs when you were a kid? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> we called them we called them Works bombs because there was another kind of. Um, uh, drain cleaner called the works that people said made better and actually we we graduated you could buy um uh gallon bottles of muriatic acid which is like six molar hydrochloric acid at the hardware store uh which uh is, is an extremely extremely powerful acid and so we would get like 40 bottles and put tinfoil and muriatic acid in them and they would uh, explode. You would have to like screw the top on it and run as fast as you could. Uh, and then they would shoot glass everywhere. <laughs> like, <laughs> that was how we had fun before I grew up. Yeah. I'm glad kids don't do that anymore. They absolutely do. <laughs> I would be disappointed if they didn't. Little Arlo's going to be making. Not, not my son. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to teach him how. That's going to be my role as an uncle. Here's how to make, <laughs> here's how to make bombs. From everyday products at the hardware store. Oh, man. We have to really limit our contact with the families. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, Glade, like Glade plugins, Drano, mm -hmm. Fantastic, uh, Method cleaning products, uh, Off, 
into insect repellent, uh, ra- mm-hmm. raid, Windex, Saran wrap, Ziploc, Pledge, Mister Muscle. Have you heard of? Have you used Mister Muscle? No, I haven't. Okay, heard of that. I hadn't heard of that either. But it's just it's the same thing as Mister Clean. It's a very muscular man, like folding his <laughs> arms and looking at you. But it's called Mister Muscle instead of Mister Clean. Mrs. Myers, the new sort of like uh, you know bougie uh, uh, Target version of uh, of that uh, shout. Uh, a whole bunch of other stuff. Anyway, I won't. I won't go. I on. do know Mrs. Myers well, so they do. They do everything. Basically. Every every cleaning product that there is <laughs> is uh, is them. Uh, they huh. and and not only that, but they're they're a global company. Uh, they are. They have factories and installations everywhere, uh, hmm. and they sell their brands everywhere. You can go to their website uh, and and look at like the. Basically, they make and sell the same products in different countries, but give them different names. Um, uh, that seems like commonplace. Yeah. So like they 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 have all kinds of of stuff. Um, so I I imagine that after doing a whole bunch of episodes of this show, uh, that your suspicion is that as a chemical cleaning products company, uh, they're just going to be a horror show of environmental uh, crimes. Yes, that would be my first thought. You would you would be wrong about that. Very surprisingly, I, I mean, this is going to be a weird segment because I got to say that SC Johnson is is one of the. It's a very unique company in, um, you know, in relationship to the other things that we've covered on this show. They have a relatively good environmental record. They do not have any lawsuits that I could find of them poisoning and killing people. Uh, hmm. They. Uh, do not have any any real record that I can find of them polluting or destroying environments. Uh, they well, I mean, I mean, it wouldn't be. I mean, you said Saran wrap. Yeah. They, they do Saran wrap. I mean, you know, I mean, obviously, yes. Okay, so this I was going to get to this later, but I'll do it now. They do make and use a ton of plastic. However, as large corporations that use a lot of plastic uh, go. They've been a leader in moving away from that. And in fact, hmm. uh, very recently, they broke off all ties with a plastics industry lobbying group uh, that was trying to get the government to pass these preemptive plastic ban laws so that like state level and local governments could not ban, say, plastic bags or, or other kinds of plastics. Um, oh, and they broke ties with them. Yeah, and they're like, we don't agree with that. In fact, we think that uh, whether or not we use plastic should be determined democratically. And if you decide we can't wow. use plastic anymore, we won't do it. That's pretty amazing. It, it kind of is. It's very unusual. Not all. I mean, like it is. It gets worse. It gets weirder. They they have been a, like a leader on on a lot of environmental issues. Their their headquarters, which I I highly suggest uh, listeners. Google. Uh, it was. It's a corporate headquarters designed by Frank Lloyd Wright, and it's one of the strangest and most uh, just interesting to look at buildings I've ever seen. But that headquarters is completely powered by wind and landfill gas reclamation, uh, and it has been since like the '90s. Uh, so they were like way ahead of the curve on that. Uh, they developed a thing called the Green List cal- Classification System for product ingredient disclosures. That is uh, like far in excess of what the government requires these companies to do. Uh, And so like if you go to their website, uh, you can 
read so on the bottles of things you can read all of the ingredients that they use in everything but if you go to their website you can get plain language um uh, descriptions of what all of those ingredients are uh like to uh, to a degree uh like uh, much much more involved than other companies do so like they go into uh the constituent ingredients in say fragrances and uh, preservatives. Okay. So you know what they're putting in there. Okay. You know, they get all these accolades from Greenpeace, the Sierra Club, and the bill- billionaire that I'm covering, Fisk Johnson, seems to be the real like driver of this environmental consciousness. Um, so is this something that he's been doing his whole yeah. career? Or Okay. Um, he he's, It's not like an awakening moment. No, no. Uh, he has a PhD in some science. Uh, I, I'm guessing chemistry. Uh, I don't know. You know, I did a lot of research that I'm not going to cover at all for this episode. Uh, I watched an hour long documentary called Carnuba, a son's memoir that was the billionaires that I'm covering, Fisk Johnson, his father's memoir of his father's journey to Brazil to discover Carnuba wax in uh tree plantations and set up so like uh sc johnson's whole like business who made model. this documentary how does well, that they I mean, did i mean it was sort of a vanity project and, and, hmm. and you know and, and like we've actually come across a number of these in our uh travails uh of, billionaire vanity yeah media. Like making a documentary about my own family kind of thing they do yeah. that a lot um uh, but uh, I, I don't I don't even want to get into that because I don't want to like it, it was very boring. But like even the grandfather of the guy who runs the company right now wa- was doing sustainable development of the Carnuba wax like plantations and building schools for the people who worked there and like giving them fair wages and things like that uh, in like the early 1900s. Right. So this is. Like, frankly, astonishing. My eyes are being opened. Yeah, it is very astonishing. Um, and we're going to get to why, because this is the whole point of this story, and I'm just going to forecast it now, is that S.C. Johnson occupies an incredibly unique niche that allows them to do capitalism in this very weird way. Uh, and so we're going to talk about that. But it's been part of their business model for their entire existence. Um, oh, you know what hmm. I forgot to mention? Is that? Do you know where they're located? Uh, well, you did mention this oh, to I me did. over. T- they're they're in Wisconsin, right? They're they're a few miles up the road from you in Racine, Wisconsin, um, hmm. a small town, uh, sometimes referred to as Johnsonville, uh, because the the entire town sort of like, you know, has been built up by the the SC Johnson Company. So, I mean, I got a couple of funny anecdotes about like uh Fisk Johnson and and what he's like. So uh there's a an environmental public interest activist uh group called Earth Justice and they filed suit against Procter and Gamble, Colgate Palmolive, Church and Dwight and Reckett Benkiser group uh for not complying with the New York which are all cleaning products companies for not complying mm-hmm. with uh, with a New York state law that required companies selling cleaning products to file reports listing chemicals in the products. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't. So when they, they wrote this up, they, they left SC Johnson out of the lawsuit because, uh, as they say, quote, when earth justice, 
uh, informed SC Johnson it was not following the law, the company began speaking with Earth Justice and other groups about what it could do to come into compliance, which resulted in SC Johnson proactively going further than the law required and disclosing all ingredients and constituents of ingredients, uh, as I said earlier, like fragrances and preservatives. Um, so, like, it's hard not to feel like positive about that. It, it kind of is, right? Like, and and I do feel positive about it, right? Like, um, like in a lot of ways, uh, uh, and we and we've only been talking about environmental things so far, but like in a lot of ways, they're kind of an ideal company in in the way that you imagine capitalism should work, and mm-hmm. and it's not just environmentally. They are also often named uh, among the best places to work in the United States. Uh, hmm. Not only the United States, but also in their their satellite campuses in like Turkey, and it's like consistently named one of the best places to work in Turkey, <laughs> like and, uh, and huh. Brazil and uh, places where they get huh. raw materials. Uh, they they uh, have been described as a hotbed of progressive diversity policies. Uh, like twenty percent of their new hires are people of color. Uh, they've been recruiting hmm. at HBCUs since the nineteen nineties. Uh, which is, you know, sort of pre-woke era. Like the the controversy, like for a chemical company, the controversy section on their Wikipedia page has one thing. And it's at one point they got, no, sorry, two things. Uh, at one point they got accused of tax avoidance. And when that happened, uh, Fisk Johnson ordered his own investigation of the tax department and then accused his own tax department of making other decisions that he disagreed with uh, that that appeared unfair. Uh, and and then I guess it went away. Um, so just the opposite of a cover up. Right. He was yeah. Yeah. No, he was, like, it more. he was like, yes, that is happening. And actually, there are other problems, too, that we you know. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, wow. It's and pretty so, amazing. Yeah, I, I mean, so they they um, they have an ethos, and it, and it seems like they take it seriously. So there is one uh, really unbelievably bad controversy uh, that I, I I won't say much about because it's not. I mean, first of all, it doesn't involve the uh, billionaire that I'm covering directly. Uh, however, it does involve the company. Um, the, uh, so Fisk Johnson's brother, um, was convicted in 2011 of child molestation. Mm. And, and this is, you know, there, there is an absolutely instructive story here that I, I feel like, I feel weird about this because we've been like, you know, I've been sort of offering these accolades about this company. Uh, and there is a v- extremely bad aspect to this this story uh, outside of uh, the molestation because you know a- a- any family can can have a person who you know molests somebody or or has a you know a- a issues or what like you know like that that happened you don't have to be a billionaire for that to happen right like uh, however what what happened was this guy told a therapist that he had abused uh, this young girl. And the therapist, as a mandatory reporter, uh, told the authorities, and it it seemed pretty clear and well established that this had happened. Mm. And uh, very shortly after he was charged, uh, witnesses stopped cooperating with the police. Like witnesses in the family? 
No. Is that, is that uh, what led to so I think it was like an uncle of the girl or something. Uh, you know, like there was somebody. Uh, so was there some like secret payoff? Is that what we're getting well, at? Well, yes. It, 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 I mean, well, I you know, allegedly, I don't know. I mean, it has very, very Jeffrey Epstein vibes. Uh, like allegedly, you know, uh, what happened is that there were two people who had information material to the case and they stopped cooperating and and one of them disappeared one of them just like left town and it became clear that this guy had molested over 20 times this 12 year old girl oh my he God. got four months in prison and like a sixteen thousand dollar fine or something like nothing and this right? was back in what did, what did you say 2011 i mean it's not really back in i mean that's basically present day like right uh just really bad so being rich is something that perverted uh, the capacity. And, 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 and not only this, right, but he was being prosecuted in a town that the company basically owns, right? And so are the police and the, and the judges and things like that being objective, right? Are they being unbiased? Yeah, I, I mean, don't four know. months, is, that's not appropriate. It's, it's pretty bananas, right? Like, um, yeah. So, uh, so there's that, right? Like, but like, you know, listeners of the show sort of like know that that's the world that we live in. Right. And so I, like, I don't want to go into that because I think that there's something, there's a, there's another angle to talking about SC Johnson that I'm more interested in, mm -hmm. uh, uh, that isn't just this sort of like this, this personal Lurid scandal. billionaire yeah. sex scandal. Yeah. 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 Okay, so like, 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 let's get back to the company, right? In in many ways, in terms of environmental responsibility, in terms of their business practices, in terms of their employer practices, like uh, as a place to work, they kind of look like an ideal company in some way. Not perfect, but like it seems like uh, an actually working version of capitalism where workers can make a living and the company isn't you know, uh, 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 gleefully destroying the planet. Um, and has some awareness of the concept of a public good. That's, I mean, that's it, right? Like, it seems like they have awareness of so-called externalities, right? Like, that they mm -hmm. they are aware that they live, <laughs> they live in a society, right? Like, they're aware <laughs> that they live in a world, right? Um, mm -hmm. Okay, so why are they like that? Why are they different? You know, why is this thing different than all the other things? Yeah. <laughs> That's a great, great question. Yeah. And I'm very, very curious to hear what you've come up okay. with. Okay. So uh, the in the 1920s, S.C. Johnson adopted a corporate philosophy that was very popular at the time uh, called welfare capitalism. Um, oh, yeah. Okay. So, so students of history will have come across this term students of history may have come across this term but uh, your average person in the street may confuse this with welfare statism or the welfare state and these are very different things right. uh, the welfare state in the united states at least is something that arose uh, uh specifically because of the failure of welfare welfare capitalism so uh i'm going to tell you just very briefly a little bit about what welfare capitalism is in case you haven't heard of that term before stuart brandis uh, who is a labor historian uh, wrote a book called american welfare capitalism 1880 to 1940 uh it gives us like a a very clear schema that we can use to understand what it is um in the in the late 19th and early 20th century, 
uh, as as I'm sure we know, there's a tremendous amount of labor unrest, right? Like this was the birth of uh, of the labor movement in the United States uh, that resulted in the formation of labor unions. There are a bunch of things happening, right? Large scale industrial production was taking shape, right? Electronics, consumer durables, all of these things. Artisan skills were becoming mechanized, automated. Uh, more and more people were working in factories and unskilled jobs. Um, and and there, were, there were few regulations protecting workers, right? Like few, if any. Uh, and so it's like the, the crucible that the American labor movement was born out of was this sort of situation, right? In the, in the you know, latter 19th century, right? We're thinking of like railroads and, and transportation industries and steel industries and things like this, uh, oil, that, that kind of coal, right? Um, it, it, you know, and just to get back to what we were talking about earlier, like, you know, most of this stuff. Uh, most most of the labor and unrest that was happening during this period was taking place right right around Racine, Wisconsin, right or like Milwaukee, hmm. Chicago. Like these are, you know, the haymarket that's interesting. Or the Haymarket riots, Chicago, right? Like that. Uh, um, just it's you know Midwest, right? Like is is where this is all happening. And so, at, you know, as it always is, the capitalist class's first instinct is violent repression. Uh, and so you get a lot of violent conflict between police and labor activists, uh, between activists and private security mercenaries, uh, you know, Pinkertons and that that sort of thing. Uh, but mm-hmm. like, but they know that that's a losing strategy from the start. Like, you, you, like immediately, anybody who's paying attention is going to know that like this is not something that we can kind of carry on into the future. Uh, mm-hmm. Violence is a short term strategy to like a larger problem, and so they start thinking, hey. We can't have this labor unrest. It's bad for capitalism. It's bad for profits. We got to figure out some way to calm this stuff down, right? And and so uh, this is uh, where Stuart Brandis uh, in this book, American Welfare Capitalism, eighteen eighty to nineteen forty, comes in. Uh, he he outlines a schema of three. There are three options available to you in that situation, right? Uh, namely, socialism, unionism, and welfare capitalism. So. First, you could permit and support unionism. You could just admit that labor creates the value of your business. And then you could enter into a system of legally binding negotiations with labor unions. The problem with that, of course, is that it cedes a tremendous amount of power to labor, right? So like capitalists are not particularly interested in that. Uh, because anytime a conflict happens, uh, uh, workers are able to make demands, right? And those demands have to be taken seriously. Right. Of course. Right. Okay. The second option yeah. you have is socialism. Uh, that non-starter for the same reason, right? Like you're ceding yeah. power, not to workers, but to the government. Right. And, and in a and in and in a country that's been forged in the blood of capitalist enterprise. Right. That's well, also not a likely solution. No, and that that's a really great point, right? Like which is that just sort of and you see this today too, right? Like it just like a gut a gut level hatred of uh non-capitalist solutions to social problems among mm-hmm. uh 
uh, among the capitalist class, right? Like the, the it's <laughs> you know, like um, and, and this is something that people who write on uh, kind of turn of the century, um, um, uh, labor movements and and capitalist ideology and that kind of stuff, like they note all the time. It's not always about profits. Sometimes it's just straightforwardly about. Uh, not wanting to cede power to other people, right? Like, which, like, which is it's kind of the same thing as profits in the long run, right? Like, because, uh, well, I mean, we'll get to this in a second, but like, it's it's basically, I I need to remain uh, in the the I need to continue to be the decision maker because there might come some point uh, at which I have to make a difficult decision between me and the other guy. Right. And I have to be able to choose me. <laughs> but um, I don't know if that makes sense right now, but it will in a second. So the third is welfare capitalism. Is welfare capitalism. And that's what they went for in the early 20th century. And this was a very popular ideology between like, you know, 1910 and 19. 19- uh, 39. <laughs> Which is, uh, let me just like get out ahead of it. I mean, basically, like, Welfare capitalism is like let's let's work capitalism in such a way where it does not implode. Yeah. That's, so, okay. You got it. Right? Like you've already divined what it's all about. Here's how uh here's how the labor historian uh Sanford Jacobi describes uh welfare capitalism. Uh, quote private, non-governmental, managerial, not laborist. To put its ideas into practice, employers cleaned up their factories, constructed elaborate recreational facilities, launched company unions, and even built housing for their employees. Like S.C. Johnson, uh, to get back to our uh, uh, person of interest, like S.C. Johnson, they turned casual positions into career jobs offering health, pension, and other benefits. By the 1920s, welfare capitalism reached millions of workers and thousands of firms. It was an impressive, if imperfect, system, one whose notions of order, community, and paternal responsibility recall, recalled the pre-industrial household economy. That's pretty interesting. When people think about like the the Pullman Company, uh, the who made you know railroad stuff and train cars and that sort of thing, in relationship to American labor history, they think of the Pullman strike, which happened in the late eighteen nineties. And disrupted, uh, you know, rail traffic led to uh, some people died. Right, people died. Um, it's a it's an important marker in American labor history. But I, I think that like what people uh, maybe uh, pay less attention to is the fact that like prior to that, for like at least a decade prior to that, uh, uh, Pullman was like a very early innovator in this area of welfare capitalism. And uh, he the 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 Pullman Palace Car Company prior and prior to uh, the strike, just prior to the strike, attempted to create this kind of company town uh, in the 1880s and 1890s. And I wanted to read a, a quote uh, about this this town uh, in Pullman. Uh, which was also the name of the town, named after the company. Uh, quote, hundreds of company-owned dwellings were deliberately set apart from workshops and no saloon keeper was permitted to tempt tired and thirsty workmen. Workers were discouraged from appearing publicly in informal attire and company inspectors imposed fines for disorderly housekeeping. George Pullman hoped his model community would nurture business virtues defined as dedication, neatness, promptness, and sobriety. 
These, in turn, would encourage employee loyalty, controlled alcohol use, reduce labor turnover, and generally build labor tranquility. So by the very beginning of welfare capitalism they were already trying they were they were already trying to socially engineer the perfect workers in a way that is absolutely parallel to say Frederick Taylor and uh, scientific management like so on the one hand at the exact same moment uh, uh, we are like figuring out techniques to control the bodies of workers while they're in the workplace. At the same moment, in other spaces, we're figuring out ways to socially engineer the uh, the psyches of workers so that they become these kind of ideal um, um, laborers. Very often, when you when you see uh, the kind of history of uh, of welfare capitalism, what they're going to talk about is like recreational facilities and um, pensions and profit sharing and, and and perks, right? Like the, mainly perks. But uh, but what people don't pay as much attention to is that ver- from the very beginning, uh, what we had were in, intentionally designed communities that were meant to produce people in a particular way, right? And and so. A perk is only a perk insofar as it serves the capitalist interest in the first place. You can probably guess what happens when uh, there are no labor unions uh, and there is no socialism. There is just welfare capitalism that is giving perks to workers. Suddenly, the Great Depression happens. And then all of these welfare capitalists just completely give up on their so-called utopian plans and fire everybody. Uh, <sighs> they either go out of business or they fire everybody. And it fails, right? Like uh, that it is simply not a sustainable model for a society uh, to to build itself on, right? Like that, <sighs> that anytime there's a recession, anytime there is an economic bubble that pops, there's just not enough then yeah to make it work no then there's not you know and so they just lay people off they just fire them and it happens all of the time for reasons that are not entirely clear to me sc johnson has was able to weather the storm of the great depression my guess is that cleaning products are a pretty stable market and that people are generally willing to spend about the same percentage of their paycheck on cleaning products as they've always been, which is to say a tiny part. Right? Like the, so they're not going to be making major expenditures on durable goods, but they right. will continue to buy soap. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. And so because of the unique nature of SC Johnson's business, they were able to maintain this welfare capitalist model up to the current day, more or less. But no one else did. Almost all the rest are gone. There might be one or two other ones, uh, you know, but like they're basically all gone. Uh, However, and, and this is the last thing that I wanted to say, is that like we've talked about this a number of times. There's a kind of resurgence of welfare capitalist ideology, right? Like, like, um, hmm. uh, you like, right. um, you, okay. So like, uh, Google's 
campus, right? With uh, basketball courts and and all right. of that shit, right? Of course. Or yeah. uh, Starbucks paying for the tuition of its employees. Or uh, all of this new rhetoric about how we need to like tax the billionaire billionaires who saying tax us more exactly you know ray, yeah. ray dalio right yeah like, the ray dalio effect. it's not because it's these that. people are nice guys right like it, it's because they understand that there is uh labor unrest right like that there yeah. are uh, uh there are antagonisms out there that they're going to have to deal with and the way that <laughs> I mean, it's maybe worth just sort of interjecting and reminding ourselves of the very obvious point that like, you know, billionaires are these, they're, they're sort of abstract in the way that they control so many resources and we don't have access to them and they're incredibly powerful, but like, they're just flesh and bones people who get cancer and could be beaten with bats. <laughs> <laughs> And like they're sitting there realizing that at a certain level, you know, that's absolutely correct. Uh, and I think that that should be the new tagline for a podcast. <laughs> uh, I'm not, that's not what I'm saying, but anyway, <laughs> no, I mean, I guess like, uh, and this is the last thing that I'll say. And then, then let's move on to the next segment. Like anytime you hear people like Ray Dalio talking about this shit, like uh, about, reforming capitalism so that uh companies give more back to workers uh and and it, it, like if they're if they're saying that kind of stuff and they're not placing collective bargaining at the center of what they're saying right in other words if they are not ceding power to labor then you can be absolutely sure that you're just dealing with the same old shit. You're just dealing with this sort of 1920s corporate ideology of, <laughs> oh, shit, there's unrest out there. We got to figure out a way to deal with that. Let's give some, you know, let's give some trinkets uh, to the, the, the laborers and maybe they'll quiet down. Right. Like th that, that is what is happening currently right like that that's what's happening now with all of these billionaires saying that we need to reform capitalism they, they, they don't really mean that so let's rate them like, is this our first one is that what i'm hearing is this a one i don't know man like yeah i mean uh the the ceo and chair of the company fisk johnson um as far as people who are billionaires and run corporations go, and I mean, this is the subset of human beings that we're working with. It's not him versus all other human beings. It's him in the set of billionaires. I, he's one of the best, you know, like he. So we're going to get, we're going to, we're giving him a one. I got to give him a one. I. All right. This it, is really it, interesting. This has been a very interesting. It feels weird to me. It doesn't feel yeah. good either. It feels very weird. No, but I mean, we have to be fair and just given the system that we've devised. That's a very nice way to put it. All right, Joe, who is your first billionaire for season two? I am covering Joseph Lamont. Do you remember what his deal was? No. I, I, and 
but I, I feel like I don't remember because it was incredibly boring. It was like insurance investment. You know, it was just like investment is right. Yeah. Investment (laughs) in software. Oh, yeah. yeah, That's right. Software. uh, Isn't it like business software investing or something like that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, I'll just begin at the beginning and say that there is very little information out there about Lamont. He's a self-described introvert who stopped giving interviews years ago. And I think I can actually outline like most of what's available to the public right now out there on the internet mm-hmm. in less than two or three minutes. So <laughs> there's there's a bare bones Wikipedia article. There's a Forbes list profile with a few bullet points listing his major yeah. accomplishments, uh, such as founding Trilogy Software and ESW Capital. Which I will talk. Uh, those more sound about. like things that were made up for a movie. Those don't even sound real. Like, like a throwaway thing that you mention in a mo- trilogy. He's in it, man. He's in the center of this culture. So, <laughs> uh, there's one talk that he delivered back in 2005 at Stanford, which is a part of their entrepreneurial thought leaders series, and a few clips from this talk have been uploaded to YouTube. And then the entire talk is available in podcast form. Uh, In this talk, he basically tells his story of dropping out of Stanford and launching a tech startup. And he encourages Stanford students in the audience to do the same. (laughs) Awesome. Uh, (laughs) His name comes up in some patent records on a few websites about rich business people and in a handful of law review articles including like a weirdly interesting article in the University of Pennsylvania Law Review, which discusses corporate takeovers and uh, what what are known as poison pills. Do you know what poison pills are? Are you familiar with this term? Well, yeah, but only from watching Succession. (laughs) So like, I don't (laughs) really know what they are, but I do know that they're a thing when a hostile takeover happens. Uh, and it's kind of interesting. An it's just a stroke media stroked out media magnate is really mad at you. And <laughs> yeah, well, so, you know, something about it, you know, it's, um, it just as a little aside, it's, it's basically like a mechanism that disincentivizes acquisitions. Mm-hmm. And they're sort of like these like corporate tripwires that trigger when acquirers move in on a company and, and, and they allow shareholders to purchase additional stock kind of like at the last minute, which will make the acquisition ultimately unprofitable. And it's an interesting world of law, of corporate law that I wasn't very familiar with, but I spent a little while reading about. So like, honestly, there's so little out there about this guy that I don't even know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly because I've literally never heard it pronounced by anyone other than you when you drew it from the roulette well, wheel. You should not go uh, by that. How do you spell it? L I E M A N D T. Oh, I see what you're saying. So it could be Lemont or Lamont, right? I mean, I try to get the names right, yeah. but like no one introduces him i can't hear (laughs) i just don't i don't i don't know i'm calling him lamont so 
Um, as far as I can tell, there's only one really substantive article that's been written about this guy. It's a Forbes article from 2018. So that's the article I'll be working from for much of this segment. Uh, and the article is, is titled, How a Mystery Tech Billionaire Created Two Fortunes and a Global Sweatshop. <laughs> oh shit that's kind yeah, of a we catchy haven't, title we right? haven't had one of these guys in a while which are the people or or women because there actually have been a, a couple of women who are referred to but people who are referred to as mysteries or ciphers or yeah. re- reclusive i feel like that was a very right. like we had a lot of those people at the beginning but i have i don't feel like we've had a any in the past few episodes. So I'm, I'm excited. I love, those are my favorite. The ones that you don't know anything about are like, uh, that, that like, I, I don't, I don't give a shit about the famous ones. Like. Well, yeah. I mean like, so, okay. we'll say maybe one or two more things about that, but among other things, the article describes his rise to prominence in the late 1990s and his company Trilogy Software, which maybe you've heard of, made a fortune selling sales management software to big businesses. And Trilogy came to epitomize the big money, hard partying, male-dominated oh, really? bro culture oh. of the late 1990s dot-com bubble. Oh, wow. Emily Chang has oh, actually written about this. In her book, Brotopia. Have you read Brotopia? No, no, no. I've heard about it a, a bunch of times. Uh, I, I, I have not read it either, but uh, I read that she covers Trilogy in, in, the, in the book at some point. So today, Trilogy is owned by ESW Capital, which is Limont's private equity firm. Mm. And cool. so, sort of incidentally, and maybe related to what you were saying a, a moment ago, the lack of information about ESW capital out there is truly laughable. And maybe we should go <laughs> on Twitter stands for? and, and put no? extra secret, uh, extra special <laughs> white, <laughs> white guys, extra, extra secret white guys. <laughs> uh, that 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 information may be available, but I don't have it right in front of me. But but I, I mean, a part of me thinks that we should go on Twitter and post another thread like we did for Cargill, calling out the outrageousness of their anonymity. It's not like Cargill level because they're nowhere near as huge, but it's still a multi-billion dollar company. Mm. And there's no there's there's no Wikipedia entry on them. Wow. They have a LinkedIn page, but they you can't learn anything meaningful about them. There's like a three sentence about section where they say that they have between 11 and 50 employees. They also write that ESW, quote, revitalizes its acquisitions for sustainable success while making customer satisfaction a top priority. Oh, end yeah. quote, which That's is just meaningless real. nonsense. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's sort of wonder like if we were going to describe our podcast using language like this, <laughs> what would it sound Success, like? <laughs> excellence. Uh... Providing semi-Marxist excellence to like <laughs> educated classes. I don't know. I mean, it's just like, how do you do It's actually a kind of skill to say so little with so many words. Yeah. Okay, so for me, the most interesting thing in this Forbes article was its discussion of Lamont's current business operations. 
So after the dot-com collapse, Lamont sort of fell off the radar. He took his company private. He dropped off the Forbes 400 list where he'd oh. been. And in the late 90s, he was this sort of young superstar, very public profile. And he he sort of retreated into the shadows. But in reality, he wasn't, you know, giving up on the lifestyle. He was working behind the scenes buying and developing software companies that you've never heard of companies that run like the most boring programs imaginable. Yeah. Like document management and customer service software. Oh, hell yeah. The kind of software that helps like so many businesses perform basic and essential tasks, but which you would never know existed unless you happen to be working yeah. in this particular commercial space. There are like more billionaires that do that kind of thing that you, than you would think, right? Like, well, I mean, but I, I, this I is, would think anyway. This is another, I think, like refrain of the show, which is billionaires make their money doing things that you didn't know existed. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. No, help, that's a, help that's run a the great world, point. You know? And like, and the, I think that the times that we've talked about that in the past have been the sort of like more, uh, either resource extraction, like people you've never heard of who do resource extraction, or mm -hmm. people who are at the next level up, which is turning resources into uh, sort of like mass materials, right? Like, like I, I don't think that there have been a lot of kind of infrastructural tech billionaires that we've that we've covered, but like this is this guy, this guy's definitely one of those. Yeah. I got um, in, in more ways than one, you know? So I think the most interesting thing about ESW, this equity firm, is it's, it's management and, and recruitment strategies that it's developed in order to run these businesses that it's developed and acquired. So the, the company that spearheads their recruitment efforts is a company called Crossover. <laughs> <laughs> Ever heard of Crossover? No. <laughs> Neither had I. Basically, Crossover has developed a system to outsource coding jobs. Oh, yeah. And like one of the main observations the company has made is that the, the, the highly skilled job sector of the economy is becoming, like so many other things, cloud-based. Yeah. And what this means is that the the old model of like white collar employees working nine to five in an office cubicle is is pretty rapidly becoming outmoded and location of the worker is much less less important mm -hmm. than the worker's skill at interacting with cloud tools mm. and from the perspective of companies hiring workers in software and coding right now, this is great. Yeah. Because there are like enough people all around the world who know how to code where you no longer need to pay coders wages that will allow them to live in California, hmm. you know? And in fact, according to Andy Treba, who's the CEO of Crossover and one of Lumont's right-hand uh, men. Bros. 
one of Lamont's right-hand bros. This is an interesting term that seems to be in the air now. Quote, cloud wage. For, oh, for yeah, for C plus plus programmers <laughs> around the world, around Fuck. the world is fifteen bucks an hour. So this is what people in Amazon warehouses make for programming in in outsourced circumstances. So okay, if you don't come into the office from the managerial perspective, you have the problem of not having a manager looking over your shoulder to make sure that you stay on task. So Crossover has created a tool to monitor and enhance productivity of outsourced cloud workers who work from home. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> the tool is called WorkSmart. And basically... <laughs> like, of course it is. That's the it basically monitors your keyboard activity and app usage. It takes screenshots oh. and webcam photos of you every 10 minutes. No managers way. receive logbooks of these snapshot quote time cards so that they can monitor basically every minute of how contract workers spend their days. Oh my God. That's crazy. So like to me, this sounds pretty much like the epitome of a panoptic hellscape. <laughs> you know, like, like uh, I, I, I can only begin to imagine like how this unfolds in horrifying ways. But one of the things that really like truly infuriates me about corporate marketing and communication is the way in which corporations try to convince you that something demonstrably horrible is actually something great. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. It's like, it's like yeah. your guy from you the end of you can, you can stay at home, but now your home is a prison where a corporate overlord is watching you all the time. But do you remember your guy who was like trying to sell us on the fact that like ads on Netflix were going to be good? Oh yeah, Jeff Green. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, no, we don't want ads yeah. on Netflix. <laughs> there's no there's no situation that. that that's good. <laughs> and he's like, but listen. But wait. Here's why it's going to be did? awesome. <laughs> I mean, it's infuriating. So I'm just going to read you two quick paragraphs from Crossover's webpage where the company is promoting the virtues of WorkSmart. Okay. So I'm, this is a quote. Staying on task is challenging, especially so for the remote worker who relies on many forms of communication to keep connected with their team. More people are working remotely than ever before, but many workers and companies still struggle with productivity when left to work on their own terms. It's a challenge, but fortunately, remote workers aren't left to fend for themselves. Oh, <laughs> they're helping. <laughs> Crossover. Oh. <laughs> Crossover has developed an online productivity tool called WorkSmart that helps remote workers manage their time more efficiently and receive a fair working environment. Yeah, <laughs> that's good, man. That's that's you really know, good. I mean, the world uh, is good. Everything is good. 
Here's how we're going to make sure that this is working for you and that you're getting a fair deal. <laughs> we're going to take pictures of you. Every... You have to wear a camera on your face that takes pictures we're of your face. We're monitoring every forever. finger movement that you make. <laughs> and it's awesome. And it, and it's actually really good. You're going to love it. <laughs> I mean, it's just on the surface, just so unbelievably absurd. So this is the future, man. You know, it's the present. And it's the present. And if you're one of those Americans out there who who wants to like level up and you're thinking, <laughs> if only I knew how to program, maybe I'd be making six figs. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you might want to think again, because the world is like quickly, quickly changing. And wow. All right. I don't know what else to say about that. No, we we just have to rate this guy, you know. Okay. And 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 so like here's what I'm thinking. I think Lamont is a 5. There's many things that I object to about everything that he's doing, but the reach, the actual sort of like at least what I can research online, he may be disguising a lot of things that aren't like uh, obvious to me, which is something that I also feel about SC Johnson. Like I, I feel like they have really good PR people who've been around for like a hundred. You know, we, we're lim yeah. we're we're limited just we by the fact limited. that we have yeah. we have no access. Yeah, and we're just yep. people just rooting around. Yeah, but <laughs> rooting around like moles and shit. <laughs> is that a saying? Is that a thing? I don't know, but um, I'm going to say a five. All right, Chad, so we're going to roll the roulette wheel for next episode. All right. You ready? We got a famous one. Joe. Who do we got? We got Travis Canale. Kalau oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Uber boy. We got that, the Uber boy. We got, the, oh man. All right. You take him. I don't want him. I don't want to deal with someone who has that much out there. Not right now. Who's the next person? <laughs> <laughs> Not right now. Yeah. <laughs> All right, man. Uh, I'll take Travis Kalalnik. Who's the next guy? Stephen Wynn. That sounds like more my speed. <laughs> Real estate services. Yep. Yep. Yeah. He likes to. Oh, oh man. You got to see his picture. He is a beautiful man. He's uh, <laughs> uh, let me, can I read you a little bit? Stephen Wynn is the founder and CEO of Real Page. Uh, Real page, like the thing, uh, uh, a firm that provides rental management software <laughs> to landlords. Oh, this is like around the nation. This guy knows <laughs> Lamont. I'm like uh, back yes, to back. This is the exact guy that you just had. 
All right. So, so everybody, we're really thankful that you're back here with us for season two. We know that this hasn't been like a revolutionary episode one, but we have. What are you talking about? It's been amazing. Yeah, we it did has a great been. job. We did well, but uh, we we have some ideas for uh, future episodes. We hope you guys stick with us. Please do the liking and the subscribing and the reviewing if you have time. Uh, anything else? If you have time. What do you mean? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? Like what? I feel like a, I feel I mean, like they a have, schmuck they just have doing time. this. It takes one second to subscribe. Like they can, they have time. Uh, if you have time. Bye. <laughs>